Conversations on Changing the World, the podcast devoted to women's issues and creating change from a distinctly Midwest perspective. I'm Martha Kovach, sociologist, producer, and your host. There are few aspects of women's lives that are more hotly contested than the right of women to control their own reproduction. At the core of that debate is the question of who gets to decide issues of contraception, pregnancy, and abortion, making women's very bodies a contested political battleground. My guest today is on the front lines of that fight. Iris Harvey is the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Greater Ohio and Planned Parenthood Advocates of Ohio. Iris shares with me the story of how the work of Planned Parenthood cuts across the generations of her own family and fuels her commitment to reproductive health and freedom for all women. We are very excited to be talking with Iris Harvey today. Iris, thank you so much for giving us your time and your insight. Thank you, Martha. I'm so happy to be here. we're, We're really looking forward to this conversation. I want to start by talking about you. <laughs> you you have a very impressive resume. You've had a long history of not just the public private sectors, but of really bridging a gap between the public and private sectors. Before you came to Planned Parenthood, in fact, you were vice president for university relations at Kent State Correct. University. The first question I have to ask you is, why did you leave being vice president of Kent State University to head Planned Parenthood of Ohio? Well, that's a a great question. Uh, I would say a couple of things. Number one, as you mentioned, my career has been long and very diverse, and so I've worked in many sectors. I've worked in corporate Uh, private sector, and I've worked in uh, the um, higher education and now the not-for-profit. So I I see my career as being one that allows me to offer whatever my talents are uh, in the right environment, in uh, areas that I feel both knowledgeable about as well as passionate about. So I'm always moving towards something as a way, Uh as opposed to moving away. Uh, My time with Kent State was wonderful. It was almost, it was, you know, over eight years. It's a wonderful institution. And, uh, but I moved towards uh, Planned Parenthood because I think like most women in America, we know the brand of, of Planned Parenthood. And one in five women have used Planned Parenthood, including myself, uh, especially uh, in my younger days. And I've always admired the work that we do. And as I look at how the world is changing, and I've been on the board with Planned Parenthood of Greater Ohio, for five years, 
it seemed like the right time to step forward um, and be a leader, both on the healthcare side and, and to work on advocacy. So I think that's part of the question. Okay. Um, the, you know, the other part is what, is, what is my relationship to the whole area of reproductive health care and, and okay. reproductive rights? And, and I wanted to get there by way of, you, you used a minute ago the word passion. Mm-hmm. And this is obviously anyone who works in Planned Parenthood, it, the potential for burnout is very high. You're jumping into the fire, really. You have to be really dedicated. You have to have a passion for women's health and women's reproductive health. Where, where did that come from? You do. Well, my passion for women's reproductive health is, is actually very personal. I will share with you a personal story of a young woman named Evelyn and a young man named Bill. And they were both 14 years old, uh, just in high school, as teenagers sometimes are inclined to do. Yeah. Uh, they had unprotected sex, yeah. and you can imagine what happened. Uh, Evelyn became pregnant at 14 years old. It was actually at a time when there wasn't a lot of reproductive health care easily available and accessible uh, to people. And they were both shamed. Their families were shamed. The family said to them, you have to drop out of high school and get married. And indeed, that's what they did. And eight months later, they had a baby girl, Arlene, who was my mother. And so Evelyn and Bill were my grandparents. And I like to think, because I had a wonderful mother, that they should have left the hospital with this beautiful baby and been able to have more guidance about where their young life should be. But that's not the case. They left without any further conversation about contraception or uh, family planning or anything. And 11 months later, Evelyn was back in the hospital having her second child. Things did not work out quite so well. My grandmother died on a delivery table. She gave birth to a child who had trauma and birth and cognitive difficulties all of his life. And so Bill was now a 16-year-old African-American male, high school dropout, no skill set, a widower, and the father and guardian of two children Uh under one years old. And so... You know, when I look at where that set the trajectory of the rest of his life, and therefore my mother, who grew up without a mother, I realize that a lot of it has to do with what would the difference have been if they had access to family planning and understanding of their options and their choice, and it might have been different. And so I've always been passionate about the fact my mother actually had a very pointed view on reproductive health care. She decided that, she told me, I have room to love one person, and that was me. And so she had one child. I'm an only child. But that meant also that she had both the facility and the access to understand how to plan to have one child and therefore to live a productive life in that environment. So I guess that's my passion about family planning and reproductive health care and how important it is and how without it, the decisions that a woman has to make 
um, get very difficult and burdensome. Sitting here overwhelmed because I have a story very similar to that. My mother's parents both had tuberculosis and they were in a TB sanitarium when my mother was born. About 11 months later, uh, there was another baby born and both that baby and my grandmother died. Mm. My mother's father died within a year after that, so there was not even a consideration of contraception or family planning, Mm -hmm. even with people who were deathly ill of Mm -hmm. tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And and being raised by a mother who didn't have a mother is is a pretty profound experience. It is, it is. Yeah, I, I... And I'm just overwhelmed by that. I'm sorry, it's going to take me a moment. That's not a story I expected to hear by any means. And so this, doing this work has really been, in a sense, a call for you. It's been a, it's been a mission in some ways. Yeah, I would, I would say so. Um, you know, it's along the journey when I um, moved into this position, I thought um, I could bring uh, the passion for the work, the leadership that running an organization uh, requires that I felt as though I could make a contribution, right, to both to patients and and to advocacy. And so it's a complex job, but, uh, yeah, it's very fulfilling. And, you know, at the end of the day, patients and staff and donors and, you know, stakeholders are always saying thank you for the work that Planned Parenthood does. And so... I figure we must be doing something right. (laughs) And you've been doing something right for a very long time. That's right, over 100 years, 102 now. Wow. I just want to throw this out there and ask you, what are, particularly today, the common myths and misconceptions about Planned Parenthood that if you could have your way, you could shout from the tallest buildings in every city in Ohio? Well, I think that to a large extent, many Americans know what Planned Parenthood does. We offer great health care and sexual Mm -hmm. education. We primarily serve uh, patients, both men and women, who live near poverty um, or are very close to the poverty line. So our health centers, the Planned Parenthood health centers, are there to provide pap smears and breast cancer screenings mm-hmm. to provide uh, respectful and non-judgmental counseling on your family life plan uh, to provide a wide range of contraceptive methods uh, that fit a person's lifestyle. We are there to provide preventative health care uh, for people who need it. And um, we also... Uh, Planned Parenthood Health Centers also, of course, provide safe and legal abortion. So the range of needs that a woman may have are there to be served. We serve women who often have to rely on publicly funded health care. So uh, Planned Parenthood Health Centers uh, are recipients of 
uh, like any other healthcare organization, we do reimbursement. We receive reimbursement for the services we provide through Medicaid or through Title X, which of course provides those programs to people who need them. Forever, as long as I've been cognizant of Planned Parenthood, everything I have heard from friends, from acquaintances, riding the bus, whatever, anything I've heard, is the one thing people talk about is Planned Parenthood being very patient-centered, and that Planned Parenthood doesn't have an agenda. The patient really and you encourage the patients to really set their in a sense the own their own agenda for their lives to direct their care to a great extent absolutely our health centers are full of uh, professionals um, nurse practitioners uh, counselors and physicians who are interested and are specialists, first of all, in reproductive health care. And so when you specialize in something, you can be really deep and rich in understanding. The second is that we realize that many patients who come to Planned Parenthood don't necessarily have other options uh, because of the um, access of um, insurance. Uh, About a third of the patients who come to health centers do not have insurance, and so we have to work with them. Uh, and that's that number is post Affordable Care Act. Still, still, wow. because um, sometimes uh, patients have not signed up for Affordable Care Act. So, in any case, our our reason for being patient is with our patients is that we need to understand what their needs are. And when we meet with a patient, our practitioners want to hear what their goals are in life. So the favorite way I like to talk about what a typical uh, visit by a person who comes to one of our health centers who's seeking advice on contraception right, might look like is that their clinician will actually, you know, do all the blood pressure and and all of that, but then ask them about what are their plans? What are their reproductive life plans? What is it about family planning and when to have a, a start a family, including a child? Where do they see that fitting into their life? It is based on that conversation that we then can say to them, based on what you're interested in, your time frame, then here are the methods that are, A, most effective Mm -hmm. in helping you uh, to achieve that goal. You know, here are the range of options that you have. So, for instance, I like to give the example of a 17-year-old who's just graduated from high school and they're going off to college, and they come into Planned Parenthood Center and they're interested in birth control because they're going off to college and they've decided they want to be safe and protective. And they're doing the responsible And they're doing the responsible thing. Being prepared doesn't necessarily mean you have to be sexually active. And so when we ask them this question, I like to think of the young woman who's, you know, a a merit scholar and she's planning to go on to medical school. And Mm -hmm. so she's got four years of undergrad and, you know, another three, three or four years of medical school residency. And so she might say, you know, it's going to be a decade before I'm 
interested in starting a family. So when you look at the methods, you can go from a method that's effective like a birth control pill every day to um, what we call long-acting reversible Mm -hmm. contraception, where you can get uh, IUDs that last for three months before you need to replace it, a year, three years, or 12 years, you know, without further intervention. So that's an option that a modern woman has today that I would say, you know, back in the days I didn't have as a young woman. And so to listen to their aspirations and what they need in their life takes time. And when we're patient and uh, our clinicians listen, then they can provide them with the solution that is best for them. As I'm sitting here thinking about myself as a younger woman, the decision involved in having a family plan, probably the last thing you consider is the medical aspect of it. I mean, it's a financial decision, it's a social decision, it's a career decision, it's an extended family support kind of decision. Absolutely. And you know, I I like the way you put that because we know that the um, CDC has called birth control one of the greatest innovations of the 20th century. And to a large extent, we know that having access to birth control has contributed substantially to women's participation in higher education, Mm -hmm. advancement to their career, uh, lower maternal death rates, and a variety of decisions that they can make about their lives because they have control over the decision when to have a child or when not to have a child if they want to have a child. So yeah, it's it's fairly amazing, don't you think? Well, and I got to be a sociologist here, occupational hazard, and say that if you look at it on a global level, that those countries in which women have control over their family size the country as a whole does better economically, does better in terms of health care and education, that it's very clear that family planning is key. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think you can't think of family planning from the standpoint of having birth control as being an isolated opportunity. You also need to be sure that a woman participating in society has other social determinants of health and and prosperity that are there. And I think of the example related to this is I lived in Japan for seven years, and uh, women at that time did not have, they had access to higher education, but they didn't have great access to employment, uh, meaningful Mm -hmm. career oriented employment. Uh, If you were a single woman, you were expected to live at home with your parents. And if you got married, you lost your job. So as more young women went to college, saw the world, they're thinking, well, okay, then there's really no value in my starting a family because everything that I enjoy, or most of what I enjoy, is going to be limited. I can't have a career. I'm probably going to marry a man who will work, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. And so you see that the population, the birth rate went down. The aging of the population 
uh, has had a, a major impact on a country like Japan. They just don't have as many children as they right. would like ultimately for the workforce. And it's not because women weren't interested in families. They were interested in a life that included a family and equity about other things. And it not being a zero-sum decision that yes. you have to make, that if I have children, it cuts off my opportunities in all these other areas of Absolutely. life. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there such a thing as a typical Planned Parenthood patient? Well, no, because I don't think there's such a thing as a typical person (laughs) in this world. I think that uh, to a large extent, uh, again, our patients, uh, one thing that does uh, guide them to us is their sense of need for health care that is respectful and non-judgmental. So they want to make sure that they're sitting across from a clinician who wants to listen to them are patients while many do have insurance and you know both private and um, Medicaid are also interested in the specialty of reproductive health care that we provide and many people are time sensitive and I think we're all time sensitive in this world that we live in and access Uh, is very important. And so our health centers are open at extended hours. You know, they Mm -hmm. open early. They're opened after five. We provide patients the opportunity to call a health center, to call, to actually go online and book an appointment to know that you have control over what day you can see what's available. Many of our health centers actually have walking capability. We have Customer yeah, try contact that with your, center with your PCP, yeah. right? Yeah. With your with your private uh, internal medicine or family medicine doctor, right? <laughs> and we keep the wide range of uh, contraceptives methods available, so you can come in today. You can have that conversation, what your needs are. And your clinician can say, fine, well, let's insert the IUD if that's what you want. And you're going about your business. In many places, you'll have that conversation and they'll say, okay, well, let's go back to the desk. Let's check your insurance. Now I have to order the device. And it's going to come in in two or three weeks. So you need to make another Uh appointment. So maybe it's four or five weeks before you can get back. You know, a lot can happen in four or five weeks if you haven't gotten your method uh, put in place when you need it. So I think that's the typical patient. They need the care, they need the access, they need the understanding, and they need and want the special understanding uh, that we provide. And the lack of shame. Absolutely, absolutely. Respectful and non-judgmental. You never have to worry that um, we're going to pass judgment. I will never forget being in college and going to the uh, student health center and to the gynecology floor of the health center and being seen by a doctor who gave me a lecture and that, um, and I will ne- I will never forget this, that he said that every child has a right to be born and Every child has a right to be raised by its natural mother. 
So this was a gynecologist who was even precluding the possibility that if I got pregnant, it was okay to give a baby up for adoption, that my life was going to be determined by the state of my womb. Mm -hmm. And this was this was the gynecologist for a student health center sure. at a university. Yeah. Um, well, so, of course, all my friends went to Planned Parenthood. They knew they knew where to go, right. and, and um, that they wouldn't. The point would not be to control their sexual behavior, but the point would be to help them make good decisions right, about yeah. their sexual behavior. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's it's very important. Um, I think here in Ohio, when you talk about uh, being a college woman, you know, we are uh, Planned Parenthood is the largest provider of sexual health education in the country. And um, Ohio is the only state in the union that doesn't have a curriculum for health and a curriculum, therefore, that's also for sex education. So it's undefined. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I got to stop you there. Let's say that again. Because you say it so nicely and so matter-of-factly, but I'm finding it staggering. Right. So in Ohio is the only state that does not have a prescribed curriculum for public education, for public schools, on health and um, also for sex education. And so each school can determine the curriculum and each uh, teacher can teach, you know, it might be a minimum number of hours that they have to do. Uh, the state Actually, its official policy is an abstinence only until marriage policy. So on sex education, young people are not being told the variety of things about not only their body, anatomically correct terms for their reproductive system, are also not necessarily being taught how to protect themselves from sexually transmitted disease and unwanted pregnancies, are not also being told the autonomy of um, and the power of uh, consent, what it means to mm-hmm. consent or not consent, you know, that it's not a one-time no or one-time yes, that there are levels of consent. There should be no expectation on pressure for sex uh, among uh, two, uh, two people. And so... What triggered my thought about this is a kid coming from a high school in Ohio at 17 has very little instruction and education on sex unless it came from their parents. And then they go to college, right? And they have now a newfound range of freedom, right? They're in the dorm. Mom and dad aren't there. You know, kids get... um, uh, false IDs. They can go down to a bar, um, and we know that a lot of sexual assault is related right. to both alcohol and drug dating. So, problematically, your university system is also receiving a person who's naive about their own uh, reproductive life plan and to protect themselves. So it's important all around. I won't belabor the point, but it's it's very important. And I think about how much that also means that young women don't get an education about their own bodies whether it's menstrual cycle or absolutely breast exams or whatever 
you know, our, our bodies are, ki- are kind of these foreign exotic things that we don't know what's going to happen until, sure. Sure. until it happens. Yeah. <laughs> We're not prepared. I, I talked to a school nurse here in Ohio um, not too long ago, and she has just developed on her own time a sex education program that uh, she's introducing into it's a, a small school system when she saw how little sex education the students were getting and they were being sent you know boys to one room girls to another <laughs> right. room right and on. she had a young woman come to her and wanted to have counsel on counting the days of her menstrual and so the nurse asked her, are you afraid that you're pregnant? And she said, maybe. And she says, well, when was the last time you had intercourse? The young woman did not know that term. And uh-huh. every other reasonable term that she, uh, or convers- the conversation that she had with the young woman, she was clueless. She was absolutely clueless. She didn't know, you know, if she really had sex, she wasn't sure. So this just shows the absolute void of young developing minds where they live without any responsible adult, you know, really trying to give them the clarity, the tools, the information uh, that they need to understand their body, to understand sexuality, and to understand how to be growing young, accountable, and responsible people without that instruction in our schools. Uh, on that note, we're going to take a short break and be back in a moment with Iris Harvey. What they tell us, how they compel us, I know what it's like to wonder what is true. In the speeches, the ignorant preachers that know what it's like to be resented too. In the brackish great unknowns, I'm left to question what I saw. We'd love to hear from you. If you have feedback, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, email us at voices at heartlandwoman.com And we're back with Iris Harvey and I have so many questions for you. (laughs) And I'd like for us to talk some about policy now. And specifically, I think I'd like to start with talking about Title X and hoping you can explain that to people who don't know what Title X. I think most of us know, even if we don't know it's called Title X, we Mm -hmm. know about Title X. And then recently about the gag rule. Okay. Okay. And how it's affecting the work that Planned Parenthood does. Sure. Well, Title X is a decades-old program uh, that essentially the best way to think about it is the National Family Planning uh, Program that was put in place to ensure, put in place by a, a Republican president, as a matter of fact. To, it was Nixon, wasn't it? Yes, it was Nixon. To ensure that people uh, of low-income low uh, people had an opportunity to have the full 
access to family planning and health care, uh, reproductive health care, and has been that way forever. What uh, the program does, it allows uh, health departments around the country and other uh, essential community providers like Planned Parenthood to be able to provide health care to anyone who walks into their door, regardless of their zip code, regardless mm-hmm. of their financial status, and regardless of uh, their gender. And so it really is a great equalizer and one way that our country ensure that people have access to good reproductive health care. And so Planned Parenthood has been uh, a provider for decades. We are probably the largest single provider across the country uh, because, indeed, we are a national um, organization. And in Ohio, uh, we have probably done, our health centers have had uh, Title X uh, grants uh, for over 20 years. And it makes it possible for someone to come in and to say, you know, I don't have the fees, I don't have insurance, and for us to provide services on a sliding fee scale. And most important, it's that it ensures that people get um, counseling about reproductive care and their reproductive life plans uh, that's non-judgmental, that's uh, comprehensive and medically accurate, and that uh, you can be assured that the methods that you want and need are available. It includes uh, being able to counsel a woman uh, who's pregnant on her variety of options, including adoption, uh, carrying her baby full term, or if uh, she's so inclined to have an abortion. So Title X is essential. It's an essential part of uh, the safety net of health care mm-hmm. um, in this country. And I'm proud to say that Planned Parenthood Health Centers do a great job. Uh, in Ohio, we serve over 59,000 uh, Title X patients or uh, women and men who need it. We account for 63% of patients who use Title X in Ohio. Now, to put that in context, we only account for 21% of the locations. So if you think of every community in Ohio, it has health departments and it has other agents that are part of health departments and they provide hundreds and they have hundreds and hundreds of locations. But yet in Ohio, uh, Planned Parenthood Health Centers have 21% of all Title X locations and serve 63% of Title X patients. So coming from my ex-corporate background, I will tell you that that is an incredible efficient system Uh, to deliver health care. And so we have been proud to be a provider, uh, plan to uh, continue to provide great health care as long as we can uh, under the Title X program. But Title X is not without controversy yes. by any means. Uh, <laughs> Title X has taken on uh, new controversy uh, recently in the uh, Trump administration. Uh, in uh, the spring, uh, 
Health and Human Services did issue a new range of major priorities and principles uh, to the Title X program. Now, Title X program is was um, put in place by an act of Congress, so it's it's legislative. So it's only the Congress that can change the essential components of it. Uh, but the new administration in Health and Human Services has added a variety of priorities to the funding that um, are concerning. Number one for family planning uh, program, it never, uh, their latest proposal, request for a proposal, if you will, never mentions the word contraception. And it <laughs> offers no um, requirement that the contraceptive methods that are provided by the clinician or provider holder of Title X funding use FDA-approved methods. So that's really concerning because you want to make sure that you're using um, dollars to provide a service that is going to be medically accurate. Um, so those are one. That's one of the concerns. The other is um, that also part of the um, scope is that uh, there's a, a a big interest in expanding the number of providers to people or organizations that um, are faith-based, which is fine, except it's uh, their uh, the suggestion is the interest is in um, methods that use uh, what's called the natural method of birth control, <laughs> yeah. uh, which uh, is the rhythm method. And we know that's probably the lowest level of effectiveness. And I like to say at Planned Parenthood, we call the uh, rhythm method of family planning parenthood because that right, often is right. Is I was going to say it's effective it if you yes. want children. It's yes. a very effective Absolutely. method. Absolutely. <laughs> There's an interest in broadening also to organizations that uh, many health professionals would consider crisis pregnancy centers mm -hmm. that uh, only feature one family planning method, which indeed would be uh, the uh, natural family planning or the... Um, so... Many of the concerns also are that uh, no organization who provides all of the options, so doctors and nurses speaking to a patient about their options to, to carry a pregnancy to full term, uh, to consider adoption or abortion would be gagged, would no longer be able to tell a patient their um, full options. And, you know, in the medical profession, that's your ethics, do no harm, and to be able to provide full and accurate information. So there's a major concern, obviously, about that. So the federal government is basically trying to police what happens at an exam room between physician uh, and her yes, patient. Yes, a clinician, physician, nurse, and the patient, yes. And uh, there are other elements of it, including uh, the uh, priority of abstinence only until marriage, right. Right. Uh, the inclusion of family in the decision about birth control. And, you know, 92% of the women who use Title X, you know, um, 
programming are adults. So, you know, okay. abstinence only may not be uh, conducive to their lifestyle. Well, and abstinence only education, in fact, is an abysmally bad way to teach young people not just about contraception but about responsible sexual behavior right. as well. well. It just only, doesn't work. Yes. Abstinence only doesn't teach young people at all about contraception. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it, I mean we know we know abstinence education whether it's about sex or drugs it just doesn't work. It, yeah. it, People have to be motivated as well as educated. And so education is having the tools and the information uh, that you need to make responsible decisions. And so, no, abstinence only. It's really more about values. That type of education system is about the values uh, that uh, the promoter of abstinence only wants you to have. Uh, we believe that Part of healthcare is really about the behavior that is needed to be safe and disease-free, or to be free of unintended behavior, unintended pregnancy. There are behaviors that ensure that, and not necessarily values. I'm I'm glad you're making that distinction right now because uh, it kind of leads me. Well, first of all, I I, I guess I should ask. Legally, what what's the status of the gag rule? Well, um, the status of the gag rule is, of, of course, it was passed and upheld by the Supreme Court mm -hmm. some uh, years ago. And um, Ronald Reagan was, if I'm correct, was going to put it into place. And then uh, he didn't quite get it going. And uh, Bill Clinton, uh, you know, just didn't apply it. So in the United States, the gag rule, while it's on the books, has been fairly dormant. Uh, but uh, this administration seems um, very intent and interested on making it an official part of the uh, normal scope of um, health care under the Title X program. So it is of, of great concern. And of course, the gag rule is... Um, part of the international and global uh, environment, especially mm -hmm. tied to uh, foreign aid. So we mm -hmm. see that being the same case uh, proposed here in America. Anti-choice activists, those people would make abortion in any form illegal in this country, seem to have currently expanded their focus to include contraception. I used to think, naively, that the, the realm where pro-choice and anti-choice people could come together would be the realm of we want to prevent unintended pregnancies. Uh, that is, nobody's pro-abortion. Nobody's out telling women, yes, get pregnant so you can have an abortion. We, we believe in women's right to choose that, but obviously the fewer unwanted pregnancies there are, the better. 
So I used to think that, well, if we all sat down at the table, what we would share in common would be what do we need to do to prevent pregnancies? Right. And the obvious answer there is a safe and effective and widespread available contraception. Absolutely. So we know if you look at over the last 20 or 30 years as the access to contraception has uh, increased that what we've seen progressively um, as more women have access to birth control is two things which are fantastic and a substantial 40-year low in unintended pregnancies and a 30-year low in uh, teen pregnancies. And so that's something that you want to happen because you want every pregnancy uh, that's carried full term to be healthy and to be planned. And there is no reason why um, you would want a teen necessarily to have to be a parent. Uh, You want them to have a full educational life. So Looking at birth control as not an option is quite frightening and disturbing, and there are indeed policymakers who see birth control as uh, being a um, an issue that uh, they don't that they're concerned about. Uh, our vice president does believe that an IUD, for instance, um, is akin to abortion, and therefore. Uh, is uh, pushing often for contraceptive methods that keep women uh, safe from unintended pregnancies and give them a variety of options for that to be removed. And so once once a sperm and an egg meet, from that perspective, it's all over. That is, you can't intervene at that point or it would constitute... Right, or, or or even to block Abortion. it. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think then we have to raise the question of what is the value of wanting to take away what are the most scientifically proven, evidence-based ways of giving any family the option of being safe from an unintended pregnancy, the way to, you know, inform young people of how to be responsible and to reduce unintended pregnancies among teens. It's not logical. It fights logic. But we're seeing that increasingly happen today. And what's behind that movement? Well, um, you asked a good question, and you have to ask somebody beyond me, because I don't know what's behind the movement, uh, how people think. I do know that it's not helpful when women have fewer decisions and few, fewer options to, con, um, to make decisions about their fertility. Uh, the same with men, you know, because in a partnership, uh, you have both people making decisions. It's not. I don't think it's good for family life. I don't think it's good for our economy. Uh, when you have teen pregnancies that might disrupt their education and therefore their earning and employment opportunities, so it's it's really sad. Also prevents women who have been victims of sexual assault absolutely from preventing a pregnancy as a result of that. Or and 
prevents someone whose birth control has failed them. Absolutely. And we know that about 50% of unintended pregnancies are failures at somewhere with, you know, they were taking some type, using some type of birth control, uh, whether it's the pill or condom and something went wrong. You missed the pill a day or two and didn't realize it. So yes, the accidents. Oops moments. Oops moment, right. Accidents happen. These latest trends would be to take away many of those options from women and, and families. Recently I saw Tammy Duckworth just brought her newborn baby to yes. the Senate floor, yeah, which absolutely. was very cool. And she had to get a special permission to bring the baby to the Senate floor. Uh, she made a joke about... Um, that she didn't know if if a onesie really fit under the dress code of the <laughs> United States Senate, but that she was willing to purchase a an infant suit if Mitch McConnell required that. Then one of the points that she made was that because of Roe v. Wade, she could have her two children. Presumably the the ultimate effect that the anti-choice and now anti-birth control contraception whole movement that's this growing umbrella over women's body issues and reproductive issues, that would also put in vitro fertilization in doubt. Yes, that is um, a possibility, and um, we know that there are legislative bills in Ohio that have been written that are um, oppositional to abortion, and included in there is language that would indeed make in vitro fertilization illegal. Sad that it would take another option of bringing a child into this world away from women and uh, families that don't have the option of doing it sort of the regular way, right? So I'm not sure what uh, people who are pushing these types of bills, are they listening to what families need? Are they concerned about what women need and how women should control their body? Or are they just more interested in dictating a policy uh, that meets their ideology and um, feeling that they have both the power and the vote to do that. And at the core of this, isn't it ultimately about who gets to control women's bodies? Absolutely. If a woman can't control her own body, then that is uh, a very sad day in America because that's what else do you have but your own being? You have your intellect, you use your intellect to decide whether you can afford to have a child, whether you feel uh, prepared to uh, be a mother or a father, and uh, whether or not this is the right time and place. So that's a fundamental that every woman should have. As we speak today, today is the first official work day for Brett Kavanaugh on the United States Supreme Court. Uh, and I'm, you're, the comments you just made are, are uh, provoking a couple of th- 
thoughts here that I would just want to throw out for discussion. One is that during the course of his regular hearings, when Senator Harris of California asked him what I think is an amazing question to ask of a Supreme Court nominee, which was, can you name any law that controls men's bodies? And of course, his answer was, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was an, definitely an uncomfortable right. yes, yes. no. I, I'm thinking that on one hand, um, people and activists for um, women's right to choose and women's reproductive health initially were very concerned about uh, whether Justice Kavanaugh would be the fifth vote needed to overturn Roe v. Wade. Whether he is that or not remains to be seen. But it was a question of, again, does he recognize women's right to control their own bodies? And then the charges that were levied against him, that threw the nation into an even bigger uproar than it was the charges of sexual assault against him by more than one woman, I thought, hmm, also raised the issue of women's ability to control their own bodies. And that theme really is one that I think resounded for so many women and supportive men, but I think particularly women and women who were not necessarily who are not necessarily political, who see themselves more as centrists or independents, but who really are aghast at at the the thought. Am I making sense here? At the sure, this, sure. this sort of right. total disregard right. for yeah. women having being able to have self determination over what happens sure. to your body. Well, yeah, and I, I think definitely the um, we saw the world, especially you know here in the United States, we saw women uh, really devastated to think that uh, a woman who stepped forward to give testimony about a sexual assault might not have been heard uh, truly, and you know so we we are all inclined to say, you know, we believe Dr. Ford. You know, in my role as an advocate, um, I hear women ask the question all the time, and they ask it, you know, when I'm out canvassing, knocking on doors, uh, when I'm at meetings with women, they ask what is the likelihood that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade. And I like to say to them that I think the bigger concern while Roe v. Wade being overturned is a possibility that really if we look across the last decade or two, the opposition to safe and legal abortion at the state level has taken many turns. And most of it has been in terms of um, practice or what we called 
targeted regulations mm-hmm. um, against abortion providers. So, to, so for example, requiring that a requiring clinic, a variety of um, things. Uh, these uh, that make it first of all. Uh, necessary for women to have medically unnecessary procedures, vaginal exam, an ultrasound, making it uh, necessary for doctors to give information that is not factual or medically accurate. A variety of things, and adding the burden of time, making it possible, uh, making a requirement that a woman come back two or three times to have uh, the completion of a decision that she's thoughtfully made about abortion. So all of these things have been put in place. Sometimes they've been successful in a state and sometimes they haven't been. And so the point that I'd like people to understand is that over time there are laws and I would say opposition to certain legislation or legal action challenging certain legislation that are at a point now that they themselves can be decided at the Supreme Court level. And any of those decisions can have the same effect as an overturning of Roe v. Wade. So we know there are about 14 state issues that are being challenged that would have an imp that are one step away from going to the Supreme Court. And so any of those, depending on the decision, could indeed take away women's right to safe and legal abortion uh, in many states. And then there are like another dozen or so reproductive health legislative issues that are working their way to the Supreme Court. So One could hypothesize, if you look at the anti-abortion or uh, legislation that's about to go to the Supreme Court of Reproductive Health, that over the course of maybe 36 months, if one of them were to have that type of a decision, you could see access to safe and legal abortion disappear for almost two-thirds of the country. And still of 25 have 25 million women of mm-hmm. right reproductive age could have no uh, um, access. There are only about a dozen states where it would be clear that safe and legal abortion would still be available. The others in various modes would have it reduced. So yes, and that's without a specific overturning a Roe v. Wade, the decisions on other legislative pieces that would send it back, the decision to a state and states and those states that are so inclined would have the right to ban abortion. So the strategy is really... uh, if you can't win at if Roe v. Wade is continues to be seen as the law of the land, you develop the strategy that says, okay, but we're going to all but eliminate women's access to getting safe and legal abortions. That is uh, increasingly becoming a successful strategy. A difficult question for you: How much of this looking at sort of women's bodies and women's right to choose what happens to their bodies as as the kind of legally contested battleground now. How much does that overlap with racism in this country? 
Well, I think um, there's, there's certainly overlap and there's certainly um, in intersection, uh, but access to abortion will always be available to anyone who has the means mm-hmm. to pay for it, right? Yes. And as it was before Roe v. Wade. And so it's not just about race, although it is also about race. It's also about income. It's about your legal status. It's about your zip code. Uh, it's about all these demographic elements that put you in a place where you simply don't have the power to exercise a choice that may be available geographically or um, financially. So it's, you know, racism is always there, but uh, there are probably uh, more white people in this country that don't have income means as there are black or brown or or um, yellow. So it's it's the intersectionality of all of okay. those gender identity mm-hmm. it, it is not one issue it mm-hmm. is many issues you know i think when you look at our especially state legislatures and you look at congress this similar characteristics of who hold those offices <laughs> And, and it should be said they don't, those characteristics are not reflective of the people, people that they're yes, supposed to be yes. serving who elected they, them. They um, are, are white men, largely. Those are not the people who are concerned about uh, the uh, a woman's right to uh, control her body and to make decisions. They don't see it in the same lens. And so I think it affects all of us. In one way or other, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a black woman. All of those things come into play, not just one thing. Mm-hmm. We're going to take another short break now, and we'll be right back with Iris Harvey. What they tell us, how they compel us. I know what it's like to wonder what is true. In the speeches, the Ignorant preachers know what it's like to be resented too. In the brackish great unknowns, I'm left to question what I saw. If you like what you hear, please tell, well, everybody about us. For more information, links, and other great stuff, check out our website www.heartlandwoman.com And we're back talking with Iris Harvey and Iris, I wanted to raise an issue about women's reproductive health that is increasingly gaining attention. And if you're a fan of Serena Williams, yes, <laughs> uh, it's hard not to be. Right. Um, I think she's done a lot for bringing this issue forward when she talks about her own experience of, while giving birth, of coming very close to dying right. herself. And she talks about, after that, she did some of her own research and discovered that, in fact, 
maternal mortality rates, particularly for women of color, are skyrocketing. Absolutely. Yeah, and I love Serena, and she is um, a, a great poster child to make this point that indeed we have two problems here in America that are in- increasingly concerning. Number one is increasing maternal death uh, among African uh, American women, and the other is infant mortality. We know that uh, there are many programs that are trying to address this. So infant mortality, as one example, is two to three times higher in Ohio uh, for African-American babies than it is for um, uh, white and the average. Um, so that's, that's problematic when you look at why is it that an African-American woman is more likely to have a child that's either low birth weight or doesn't make it through their first year of, of life. And the same for in you know a country where we have great economics and great health care, why are African-American women dying? And I think you have to look um, beyond the easy answers uh, that many providers of social services are trying to say, well, women should stop, African-American women should lose weight or stop smoking or space their baby and do all of these uh, pragmatic things that really only account sometimes for maybe 30% of the issues with um, uh, so they want mortality to attribute it to lifestyle factors. Yeah, lifestyle <laughs> things. And the reality is we know it is the pressure, indeed, of racism in yes. this country that um, makes uh, often an inhospitable environment for a woman to carry a child. And uh, so it is that problem that are related to the inequity in our system and the ability to navigate a system where you have social determinants that are fighting a successful uh, pregnancy and a healthy birth. Uh, You have women who are homeless. You have women who can't access employment. You have, uh, you know, women who can't get to employment because there's no transportation. They may not be able to get to uh, a place where they can buy healthy food. I was going to say food deserts. deserts. Uh, You have um, the problem of education. You know, our public school education system is failing our students. So students who come don't get a good education. They don't get preschool education. Uh, You know, they come out of high school unprepared for great jobs, the jobs of the future. So that, to me, is... Uh, a central focus of where racism comes in, in that when people of color cannot fully participate in our democratic society, when they don't have access to schools that are preparing them for the future, uh, where they're living in places where uh, gun safety is right. an issue, where the all of the jobs are being sent to the suburbs and there are no public transit systems to get there. When many of the health, if they need public required, publicly assisted health care, there are few places that want to, you know, 
uh, provided. And of course, the growing population of homeless people are amazing. It's the yes. numbers raising. And it's very often a woman who's a person of color with children who are living this horrendous experience of living in shelters or living in a street or living in cars. And so that does not make for a healthy environment to uh, be able to safely deliver a child. So yes, from that standpoint, there are the issues related to reproductive health care and racism that our country, I don't think, is addressing very uh, effectively. And those are really very structural issues. I mean, they we're are. talking very much about institutional racism that supersede whatever kind of lifestyle factors. Yes. Um, you, I mean, you can be a non-smoker and of ideal weight, but if you're living out of your car... right. But the racism, I think, also, especially on, you know, our health centers uh, do a lot of work uh, with pregnant women uh, and uh, trying to prevent infant mortality. And one of the things that we know, and there's lots of research that shows this, for African-American women, an African-American woman who is college-educated, who has great income and a secure life, like uh, Serena, Williams is more likely to have a low birth rate or a child that doesn't live to their first year of age than a white woman who's a high school dropout. And so it is not just about being financially secure or bodily healthy. It really is about how do we stand and exist and overcome the um, structures of racism in this country. Yeah, We have coming up midterm elections. Can you talk about the significance of those for maintaining women's uh, reproductive health and women's reproductive rights? Sure. Well, the ballot and the ability, the constitutional right to vote is one of those elements of democracy that none of us can afford to ignore. We need to, everyone needs to exercise their right to vote. And, you know, certainly if you have contention with the um, current office holders, if you don't believe the policies that are being promoted are the ones that will have a positive effect on your life, your family, your community, then it's your responsibility to vote. And the midterm is indeed going to be uh, a chance to do that uh, in terms of reproductive health care and women's rights. We certainly uh, saw the 2016 election and many women were disappointed at what happened. Uh, uh, Many participated in, you know, uh, making sure that uh, policymakers were put in place that agreed with them. And for those of us who may have a different opinion, then it is very important uh, to get out and vote. Uh, and uh, vote for many reasons. Uh, it could be, you know, to make sure that a sitting legislature uh, where you have a supermajority uh, can pass. Uh, punitive laws for women, but where you wouldn't have a governor who signed it, would sign the bill that would veto instead. Uh, You could make sure that you have an attorney general uh, that doesn't pursue 
um, uh, you know, laws that are not constitutional using taxpayer money. You can make sure that voters are not purged from the roll by changing the Secretary of State. So, you know, as one of the things that we do here at Planned Parenthood Advocates of Ohio is to make sure that uh, people, our patients, uh, and our stakeholders and the community understand the opportunity to participate in midterms and that voting is a good thing, it's a necessary thing, and you don't change anything without doing that. I think also we could make the case that with the Supreme Court now looking like a 5-4 majority in favor of the erosion of women's reproductive rights, that what's at stake at the state level is even more important. Absolutely. The state is where a lot of the action is. And, you know, we talk about, uh, you asked a question earlier about racism. Well, these voter suppression uh, tactics that are being uh, put in place in states across the country really are targeting usually people of color to lessen mm -hmm. their power at the polls. Mm -hmm. And so all of this goes hand in hand. And sitting out a vote, uh, sitting out an election, to me is not an acceptable way to express your discontent. I think uh, you can vote uh, the right uh, path that gets you what you want, and you can still march, right? You can right. march and vote and win. <laughs> well put. And I want to make a plug here for the website for Planned Parenthood Advocates of Greater Ohio because uh, you really discuss specific pieces of legislation. I went through trying to count the number of pieces of legislation now pending in Ohio that sure. are are really directly affecting women's health sure. and women's yeah. reproductive rights. So we will have the link for that on our website. Oh, great. Thank you. And Iris Harvey, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today to talk about these issues that are so critically important and that are becoming much more part of our mainstream public discourse daily. Well, it's my pleasure to be able to talk with your audience and to share some of the great things that uh, we do and that our health centers do and the concerns of women in America. Thank you. We'll leave you today with this thought from Marianne Radmacher. Sometimes courage is the quiet voice at the end of the day saying, I will try again tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Be well, and we'll see you next time.